Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Noel Kassler podcast, episode 49. We're happy to be here with you. It's been another crazy week, as you all know. Big ice storm on the East Coast last night, but we're here recording. It's Saturday morning. I'm here with my main man, Jumping Jimmy Kennedy. Jimmy James, <laughs> How's it going? How no. Good, brother. Good. You have a nice week? Uh, it's it's kind of like The Shining here in Indy, man. We've had a lot of snow, uh, and now it's bitterly cold, so... I'm kind of, you know, I had cabin fever before and now I'm really sealed in the house for a couple of days, but we'll, we'll survive. You know, we got plenty of snacks, a lot of good things going around still, yeah. uh, even with the, the weather. But As long as you got snacks and Netflix, yeah. you'll survive, you know, or Showtime. Did you see the Bill Cosby doc I mentioned to you? Dude, I, I watched it all. It was very compelling. And, uh, you know, I knew about the Cosby show but I didn't really know the full extent of his career and how impactful he was uh, for a long time. And yeah, just a really interesting story. Really well done. If you haven't seen it, I would check it out. Yeah. Well, he was a giant, you know, he was a giant in comedy and a giant in the popular culture. You know, he was this first sort of middle of the road African-American comedian that became you know, a household name. And I was born in 1971. So Bill Cosby was ubiquitous in my childhood. You know, I grew up watching Fat Albert every Saturday morning and he'd sit and give you, you know, this sort of like moral at the end of it. He'd go on camera and tell a little story to kids. And he was like America's father, you know, and I grew up in my high school years. I was raised by my grandparents and my my step grandfather and, and my grandmother, maternal grandmother. And my step-grandfather, Vince, he worked for NBC. He was one of the first big like computer guys at NBC. That was his gig. So we would get tickets to go watch him tape the Cosby show every season. You know, every year, every NBC employee would, you know, get tickets. And it was a big deal in my, in my family because we all watched the Cosby show every Thursday night. It was must-see TV, Jimmy, like the whole world would watch this. And it was good for all of us to see like this prosperous, well-educated, happy, you know, family that was just like what everybody aspired to, you know, in their families. And we all had a blind eye to what was going on, you know, so it was so creepy to watch that doc and like see the studio scenes and know that his assistant was pulling women off of the set out of rehearsal to bring them to his dressing room. And like, comes up in the dock. I won't spoil it for people, but there were like, you know, these signs, you know, they went through his career and then you hear him, you know, even on the Cosby show talking about drugging women and stuff. And I do remember there was something that seemed off about him. You know, you wanted to love him so much and you thought he was going to be this like nice guy. And he would come out and talk to the audience before the taping. You know, and he's the reason everyone was there. And he'd come out and like do a little QA. And I remember he was always like super arrogant in these things. They would be like, how much do your sweaters cost? And he'd be like, a lot of money, more than you have, <laughs> you know? And then they'd be like, how many houses do you have? He's like, I have so many houses, I lost track. But like an mm -hmm. asshole about it. Not like, oh, you know, thanks to you guys. I, you know, I have many blessings. You know, how are you today? Thanks for coming. He was like, clearly an asshole and then i worked with him you know in my own career i did the american comedy awards he came and got an award i think because seinfeld refused to <laughs> so they gave it to cosby and i remember he took our escort 
you know, I work in the talent logistics. So we assign these talent escorts, they're handlers. You know, I've explained this before. Here, you're assigned to Madonna to follow her around all day. If she needs water or something, let us know. And the one that we gave to Cosby, he took her back to his house, you know, back mm -hmm. to his townhouse in the East 60s and on the Upper East Side. And like, she was thrilled. She was this young African-American girl like spending the day with Dr. Cosby. It was the other thing you had to call him Dr. Cosby. And uh, even at a comedy show, you know, you're Bill Cosby, you're Fat Albert, you know, nope, Dr. Cosby, you know, and that's fine. You know, he was worthy of respect before we knew this. But uh, I always thought that was strange. I don't think he did anything to her, but it, it was bizarre. You know, it crossed a line that most talent doesn't cross. And then uh, I remember... I did the, the Mark Twain prize. He received the Mark Twain prize at the Kennedy Center. And this was towards the end. I mean, this was right before the scandal uh, broke open because there was a few false starts, right? Where the, where the public didn't really want to grasp onto it. NBC even gave him a contract, you know, in, in the 2000s, in 2005, like he was, or 15 rather, he was about to get another, you know, NBC Cosby show when the whole thing kind of came tumbling down. But uh, it just shows you the lengths that this industry will go to cover things up like that, right? Mm -hmm. and, and what I took away from it was like, yep, that's the industry I worked in. You know how a whole TV studio could know a guy was a scumbag, but he was powerful and wealthy and there was a lot of jobs, you know, involved. So it pays to look the other way. You know, that's what this industry is always rewarded, like keeping your mouth shut and catching a paycheck. Like, and, and you see that because there's no way people on set didn't know what was happening. He was bringing in 10 models, 15 models, every show sitting in the audience. And then they would line up outside of his dressing room. Like, what do you think he was doing in there? Not to mention, and I'll shut up, but not to mention people talk, you know, that's what you do on set is you talk shit about the talent, <laughs> you know, like if you're working mm -hmm. production, you're going to be talking about that. So there's no way the PAs and the ADs and all these people didn't, you know, know what was going down, but it was willful, willful ignorance. And I'm not putting it on that or willful blindness and I'm not blaming them completely. I'm just letting you know, you know, that's how stuff happens. And those patterns carry into our modern life right? Jeff Zucker resigned at CNN this week because he had to, right? Because he's having an affair with his longtime girlfriend who lived in the apartment above him and his wife, okay? Like this was no secret in New York City society that they're in. Like this was a long-term affair that their spouses knew about and was basically out in the open. But so he had to retire for that, resign essentially, forced resignation. And also they were giving advice to Andrew Cuomo, you know, when he was governor, right? But so it finally caught up with him, basically, because he probably tried to, you know, screw Chris Cuomo out of his paycheck. And, and Chris is like punching back now. I think that's how that story finally broke. But my point is Jeff Zucker was the head of NBC Universal Entertainment, right? When The Apprentice was put on, <laughs> when Celebrity Apprentice that I worked on, and I make this point all the time, like Jeff Zucker knew what was going down. You didn't work in TV and not know Trump was, you know, molesting contestants on Miss Universe. Yeah, you know, you did not grow up or live in New York City and not know this guy was laundering money for the mob and was a complete idiot, let alone a billionaire. Because Jeff did him the favor of giving him the job. Trump was broke when he got The Apprentice. He'd blown his father's inheritance, you know, that he strong armed his siblings into signing away.
you know, the, the, the dad's business. They sold it for a one-time lump sum. They should have held on to it, but Trump's a terrible businessman. So he blew that money trying to bail out his casinos and then he was broke. And Jeff Zucker gave him a fat contract and then brought in all his kids. Like I always say, real billionaires don't have their kids come work for them on TV shows, right? My dad's a billionaire. I'm in Monaco right now, racing McLarens, you know, or I'm, you know, I'm on a catamaran somewhere in the South Pacific. <laughs> I'm not in Times Square on Sunday night letting dad know if Little John's pop-up shop is better than meatloaf's. You know what I mean? <laughs> right? But that's what you were supposed to believe, that somehow these billionaires had an interest in seeing daddy's reality show. But um, meeting Clay Aiken, like it just doesn't add up. And everyone knew it did, but he kept his mouth shut. It was a moneymaker. And that's that industry. And that's the kind of stuff we need to blow up, right? We need to stop settling for this, okay? Because it's now institutionalized. You know, everyone knew Trump was a scumbag in DC and they kept their mouth shut, right? And Mike Pence finally spoke up yesterday, 13 months later, right? Your hometown boy, is he a hero now for doing that? No, it was his only play left, right? Because Greg Jacob and, you know, Mark Rich or whatever, not Mark Rich, which is Mark Short, had to go testify. So he knows his two assistants told them everything anyway, the January 6th commission. So he had no play left. And uh, I'll let you handle that. You, you tell us what you think about your hometown boy. Well, I mean, I've already told the story about when I met him on the field that he was very opportunistic when he met me on the field at Lucas Oil Stadium. You know, when he met me, he made a point of saying, how are you? You know, not, hey, man, what a great environment. Thanks for coming out to the game. You know, hopefully the Colts win. It was nothing about that. It was more, let me get a photo op with the kid that has a walker on the sideline. And, uh, you know, I, I've been talked to that way by people. I can kind of sense that. So that's the kind of guy that Mike Pence is. He's opportunistic. You know, it. He waited until the very last minute that he could to overturn American democracy, only when he knew it wouldn't work and he had to say, hey, they're sending fake documents to the National Archives. That's when, you know, he had to say what he said on the 6th and they wanted to hang him. You know, all of a sudden, the people that, that wanted to hang you, you're having to say that Trump didn't win. Like we knew this a year ago. This shouldn't even be a headline. But in today's America, we're that divided that saying a president is wrong becomes a headline. That's crazy. It, it, yeah. And it's accepting the obvious and not doing anything about it. You know, that's the point I'm trying to make. That's like the opening yeah. theme about, you know, Bill Cosby. We're talking about a 50 year career, you know, with a television show or three on it every time during that career. Right. And nobody wants to really like point out the obvious. I mean, we're talking a thousand women, probably, you know, there's 60 that came forward. So, you know, there's 150, if not a thousand, because the guy was like pathological about it. But my point is like, you said it best, right? Mike Pence, he waited all day. He knew about this. He was in the middle of this plot. You know, the, the night before Giuliani was trying to get into his residence at the Naval Observatory and give him one last consigliere's push on why he had to do this. January 5th, Trump cornered him in the Oval Office. It was like, you're going to do this. And he's like, I can't. I called Dan Quayle. Dan Quayle says I can't, you know? So it wasn't like Mike Pence didn't try every way to Sunday to help this coup you know, that had been basically planned out in the open for the preceding six weeks go forward. And it was only in the last minute when he mm -hmm. saw it wasn't going to succeed, right? When the Secret Service was trying to get him to get in the, you know, SUV and 
get taken off to God knows where, you know, that he was like, okay, I'm going to stay here and certify the ballots. But so he's no hero. And he didn't speak up when he could have, he could have walked away in December and said, Hey, these guys are planning on overturning the election. And they've gone so far as to game out seizing voting machines. And they have fake electorates filling out ballots. Now I may be a Republican, but above it all, I believe in democracy and it's not the right thing to do. And I need you all to know that. You know, this guy's unfit to serve and he's he's planning on doing the worst crime against democracy that, that we've ever had in this country. But he didn't say that he showed up there and then he kept his mouth shut for the last year and a half. And it's not like he's volunteering to go speak for the January 6th committee. Right. And why isn't the committee subpoenaing subpoenaing him? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, wh- why are we we're thinking about maybe calling him forward? Everybody should have been called forward a long time ago. Mark Meadows shouldn't be on his seventh or eighth week, you know, of defying a subpoena without any action from the Justice Department. And everybody's like, well, just give it time. We got to dot these I's and cross these T's. You want to make sure he doesn't get off on a technicality. Technicality. First of all, he's 75 years old. So he's basically already gotten away with it. Right. He's having a you know $250,000 a person fundraiser at Mar-a-Lago in coming days, right? He's having rallies every goddamn week. He had one last Saturday night and talked about telling his crowds to do the same thing again, right? Mm -hmm. If he gets arrested, go attack Atlanta, go attack DC, attack New York. You know, he's building an army. And this is what I want people to understand. While we're sitting around and arguing amongst ourselves about how great DOJ is, and it just takes time to build a solid case against a guy, by the way, who's been doing illegal shit for 50 years, right? Just like (laughs) Bill Cosby, right? He's a Trump has got a lot in common with Bill Cosby. It's the same sort of thing. It's powerful men, you know, that get away with being predators because individuals are like, who am I to take him down? I can't afford a lawyer. And they know that, right? And that's the thing we need to end. That's the cycle we need to break. And that's what we need the Department of Justice to understand that like, we're not in normal times. It doesn't go back to normal. When you let somebody do this, you know, he molested democracy. Okay, you need to go in there and kick some ass. It doesn't have to be all the charges, but it has to be some charges because a bully only stops when you sort of metaphorically punch him in the face and he needs to know there's pushback. And and instead, they see weakness. Essentially, Democrats don't want to hear that, but Republicans are not scared. They're having rallies every weekend, right? They're having fundraisers. Neil Gorsuch is speaking at the Federalist Society at Disney World with no press allowed, right? The guy who's supposed to be impartial, you know, which is also where Trump's case will probably end up, right? In the Supreme Court. So at least you can start the legal process of holding this guy accountable instead of being silent because Benny Thompson said that we're thinking like May or late April for hearings. Well, May or late April for hearings, if you got people that don't show up and defy subpoenas on the hearings, that means if justice moves on those people, it's another six or seven months before they go to trial, right? Right. Steve Bannon defied his subpoena in November and his trial begins in July, right? So you start doing the math because the election's in next November, right? The midterms are this November, right? 11 months, whatever, 10 months from now. You see what I'm saying, Jimmy? You don't have that much time and democracy doesn't have that much time because in the meantime, all these chaos agents are hard at work and all these rallies are happening. And it's these rallies where these plans get solidified, right? 
it's like Trump had a hotel in DC so he could do the real jinky stuff in the lounge at Trump Hotel, right? And right. in the hotel room at the Willard and at his private suite in his hotel. So the same things with these militia guys. You know, the real shit gets talked about in the parking lot in Arizona, right? Before they go inside, when these bros are like, yeah, bro, I got a whole arsenal. I'm ready to throw down these communist Democrats come try to eat my baby. You know, <laughs> I'm taking up arms. It's a lot. It's like conventions for serial killers or something. You know, there's a reason you separate prisoners, right? You don't want them together all the time. There's not, you know, do, do you see what I'm saying? Like, but yeah. instead these people that have done this are having gatherings, weekly gatherings, and they're being fomented and they're being like excited by all these psychopaths, you know, from Gosar to Carrie Lake to you name it, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who this morning mm -hmm. said GoFundMe should be arrested because they're not sending money to the Canadian truckers. So my point is they're lighting fires everywhere and nobody's putting these fires out, right? People are like, well, we got to make sure that water is just the right temperature before we point <laughs> the, the hose at the burning house because we don't want it to, you know, spook the flames. No, man, <laughs> you know, pull out the hose and start spraying shit because the house is on fire and we're all going to be dead, you know, if you don't do something about it. They're burning books. Right. There's outwardly racist podcast hosts using the N words 20 times thinking it's cute and it's humor. It's not. You're reinforcing toxic white male masculinity BS. You know, you're spreading lies and you're getting paid gazillions to do it. It's not free speech. It's certainly not comedy. It's idiocy. Right. But it emboldens the ignorant and anything that emboldens the ignorant. We have to treat as weaponized malevolent hate speech because that's what it is it's not free speech it's this ignorance that allowed trump to happen right he came down the elevator he said i hate mexicans vote for me <laughs> right and everyone's like yep that's our you know whatever nobody said hey that's the guy who was raping contestants on miss universe 20 years ago you know that's the guy that jeff zucker was looking the other way when he was snorting adderall and grabbing his daughter's ass on the set and I heard about it a hundred times from producers, but I didn't do anything because it was number one on Sunday nights. And I like money, you know, and I like my house in Bridgehampton and I like going to Maidstone and playing golf in the summer. So don't rock the boat. And that's what we're in. You know, that's what the Joe Rogan thing is, right? Hey, don't, don't rock the boat. He's making money for us. Spotify should be like, you're out of there, dude. We didn't sign up for this crap. But it's a Swedish guy who looks like Joe Rogan, right? It's the same thing. These white male bros running the world. Mark Zucker lost $200 billion. Facebook lost the other day. Imagine, have, imagine having that kind of money to lose. You know, they spent like two, two to $3 billion on the whole meta infrastructure. Why not just take that money and house people? You know, you got people sleeping in the streets. We don't need an alternate universe. We need an empathetic, compassionate universe now in the real world we need to feed and clothe and give people health care and education you know and stop like the poisoning you know of our ideology and of our planet mark zuckerberg could be a hero if he decided he wanted to combat climate change and stuff dude could spend the rest of his life making this world a better place and would have a vast fortune and a vast reach to do it but instead he wants to make money right? Because these tech bros become kings in their own minds. And don't get me started on Elon Musk, because that bro 
is a Bond villain. He's out there tweeting every day, cheering on these Canadian truckers. And it's spreading. You know, it's going to be our greatest export is going to be fascism now instead of jazz, you know, or rock and roll. It's going to be up because that's an American shit. Truck drivers like being assholes in a capital. That's and this stuff is also being coordinated by Putin, you know, by the Russians and the chaos agents. The stuff is all similar. If you break down the language and and how this stuff starts in these chat rooms and everything. So, you know, I know that's a bit of a rant on it, but it's all connected and it all comes down to money and it all comes down to wealthy people manipulating ignorant people and giving them the, the illusion of being powerful. You know, that's what Joe Rogan does. He, 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 he couches it, you know, to these these bros that listen to him on the drive to work, you know, he's like Charlie Rose for them. All of a sudden they feel like intellectuals because they got a guy on who calls himself a doctor and uses big words. And they're like, hmm, that does make sense. I hadn't thought about that. Maybe I do have natural immunity. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Take your vaccine, you know? So, and it was damaged. People died. I guarantee you people have died because of what Joe Rogan is saying, you know? And that's why Neil Young was like, get my stuff off of there. I don't want my music on there. So, and, and, and that's, that's the only muscle you have left in the society, right? Is, is, is your ability to decide where you're going to spend your money. You know, that, that's the only thing that's going to get anybody's attention, right? You can't, the blue wave emoji ain't going to do it. In your <laughs> you know what I mean? You got to walk the walk. Well, and, um, you know, I saw a clip from an old Joe Rogan uh, interview. This is before he signed his big deal and was totally crazy. He was talking about, like, people need to understand the value of vaccines, talking with an actual epidemiologist and trying to provide actual information in the beginning. But that shows you how much money corrupts things. And one thing that Republicans always made a point to me about was, like, Trump gave up his presidential salary and, you know, how selfless that was. Real selflessness would have been, you know, renting out Trump Doral to homeless folks, using his golf courses to house people that needed housing, you know, but he didn't want to take any of those steps because he wants to play golf himself. He spent hundreds of millions of dollars at his own courses on our dime so that he could play golf for free. So, yeah, it's just, it's a money-making machine, man. At this point, that's what America is. And they're still printing money. Yeah, no, because yeah. it's, it's profitable. You know, it, it's easier to kick Whoopi Goldberg off for two weeks than it is to go after Joe Rogan, you know, or, or any of this other stuff. And I was Whoopi's escort when she hosted the Tony Awards in 2008. And I've done a lot of other stuff with Whoopi. You won't meet a more compassionate person. You know, she was wrong in what she said. It was ignorant. People don't understand the Holocaust. They don't understand, you know, it was the Hindenburg laws or whatever that said Jews were, you know, an inferior race. Okay. So it was a racist thing. You know, the Holocaust was the, the epitome of that, of racism. And, you know, she misspoke and apologized and it, it showed an opportunity for a, a better dialogue of understanding the horrors of the Holocaust, you know, because I don't know enough about it all. And I, it's not something that I've shied away from. And, I, and, and my life has been made better by Jewish families my entire life. Like I've only dated Jewish girls. It's Jewish moms and dads that helped me become the man I am, you know, because they're great at that kind of stuff. And I was a kid who needed, needed a lot of help and a lot of examples of that sort of thing. I can't tell you how many times you know, there's three families in particular I'm thinking of, you know, with three girlfriends that mean as much to me as my own family. And 
all of those families lost people in the Holocaust. You know, I follow the Auschwitz Memorial and I meditate on this stuff every day. You know, I look at those pictures, you know, and you think of what it would feel like as a parent, knowing your child was there with you in a camp. It, there is no comparison to the Holocaust because there's never been anything like it. It's a uniquely evil thing that is so beyond the pale, you know, and I'm not, I'm not couching, I'm not comparing this with slavery, which was the other just horror, like, are you kidding me? How does this happen? And it's the other thing they're not trying to teach about, by the way, right? These things are allowed to metastasize in the world because you don't have enough sunlight and disinfectant on it. People want to move on and make jokes about it and act like it's, you know, not a big deal. It's a horror that you should think about every day. We need to honor the lives lost and we need to have a dialogue because last weekend Nazis rallied in Orlando in the broad daylight, okay? And now if people in this country understood, you know, the Holocaust in a deeper way, Nazis wouldn't have made it to lunchtime. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? If mm -hmm. you really fully in your heart knew what was going down, those bros wouldn't have been out there for hours harassing people and calling them Jews as they're driving by in their cars, right? They would have been dealt with. And I'm not advocating violence, but citizens arrest or something, I would have duct taped those motherfuckers. <laughs> you know what I mean? Thrown them mm -hmm. in a moving van and dropped them off in front of the police station right? They wouldn't have gotten away with that for 30 seconds in Germany, okay? And they'd be in prison for the rest of their lives just for flying the goddamn flags practically because it's evil. But now it's popular again in this country and that should terrify people. You know, and as I've been saying a lot recently, there's a lot of money in Florida, you know, that could fight against this. That's where you stand up to Ron DeSantis. Use that muscle. There's so many wealthy folks that have homes in Palm Beach and Miami that have powerful connections back up here in the East Coast. We could be doing something about this guy. And instead, nobody's doing something. Gorsuch is at Disneyland this weekend, right? <laughs> Nazis were rallying in Orlando outside of Disneyland. You know, like the state legislator is putting homophobic anti-LGBT laws on the books in Florida. They're burning books. In Tennessee, there was a book burning like it's insane, you know, and only an ignorant populace would allow that stuff to happen. And I'm not just blaming the left for letting it happen. I'm talking about the people who buy into this shit. They buy into it because they're ignorant, you know, because they think it's cool and they believe the poison they've been sold by the Republican Party for most of their lives, that an immigrant or the other is their enemy. Instead, mm. their enemy's right in front of them. They're putting 75 cents in a Coke machine and taking that can, you know, of the corporation. You know, they're filling their pickup truck up with gas from Chevron that's poisoning the rainforest and, and having oil leaks every other day that's causing birth defects in people. You know, they, they, it's clear who the bad guys are, the Coke brothers and stuff, but they all have the Federalist Society. They have the Heritage Foundation and that stuff gets filtered down into bro culture, right? It ends up as intolerance in a comedy club. Well, I'm just making a joke. No, you're being a misogynistic asshole and you're reinforcing toxic masculinity and racism. You know, Joe Rogan is not doing any favors to the world. It's not free speech. All the comedians he has on there are just bald dicks who say fuck every other word in their act. Right. And they're popular because he was a pipeline for that. That's what the comedy store was in L.A. And in New York, there's a famous basement comedy club that churns those guys out. Right. They're just like 
I'm just being politically incorrect. I'm an aggrieved white guy. That became very popular in comedy. The Louis C.K. crap. You know, everyone knew Louis C.K. was a scumbag and he was the biggest comedy comedian there was. And I'm not supposed to say this because I'm a comedian, but don't even lump me in with those guys. First of all, I haven't made any money like they do, and I'm not trying to. And second of all, they're assholes. You know, when I used to do comedy clubs all the time, which wasn't that long a time, you know, because the pandemic came, I hated being in there half the time because every dude would get up and do some horrible, misogynistic, stupid, lowest common denominator joke because they saw the last guy do it, you know, and the audience laughed. That's what people think comedy is like, oh, I'm going to sit in the front row and he's going to make fun of me for being fat you know, or being gay or something like that. That's the act in these clubs. And I was like, why am I even exposing myself to this kind of stuff? This is an art. And it's not to say things can't be funny and politically incorrect, but it's supposed to be satire that, as George Carlin said, you're punching up, you're going for the hypocrites in power that aren't representing the truth, you know, mm -hmm. and that are screwing people over. And now it's, it's not, it's just snivelly white guys being assholes to everything they don't understand and having other white dudes laugh at it, you know, or black guys, you know, Dave Chappelle opens for Joe Rogan, <laughs> you know, he did a comedy tour with him in Florida, as I talked about on this podcast, like I wouldn't have been doing that. I'd be like, are you kidding me? First of all, I'm not going to do a show in Texas or whatever, but you know, that's Dave's thing. That's almost his base is like MAGA guys and stuff, you know, and somehow he's able to like get away with it because he's seen as like some bastion of liberality or something you know it's weird I, I never got it I was never a fan to be honest with you he's obviously not without talent he's talent but when I lived downtown and he was playing like the cellar and all those places all the time mm -hmm. in the 90s they were dumps man you know I went to drama school I was like that is so far beneath me <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> And, I'll, and people are going to get mad at me for saying this. I'm just being honest. You know, I was a songwriter before I became a comedian and an actor. I'm, I'm using this to try and illuminate some things I believe in well, and make people laugh. I know I'm funny. I know how to write this stuff in a way that'll make it comical. But I'm trying to get you to think, you know, I want you to leave a show of mine understanding that we're all together. You know, we're all in this together and only through harmony and understanding and sharing love and compassion can we get out of this thing? And that's what we look to our artists to give us. You know, as I talk about Stevie Wonder all the time, you know, you want somebody who's raising your vibrations, not raising your hackles and your malice and your resentment. Somebody giving you poison if that's what they're giving you. It's not comedy. It's not art, right? It's nasty, but it sells. I, the thing that I remember Dave Chappelle from first was Nutty Professor as the insult comic, like just trashing on Sherman Klump, who was heavy at the time, you know, and he's just trashing on him. I've never been a fan of that. You know, the first comedy show that I went to, I went to an open mic night to support my buddy. And I should have known not to sit toward the front, but, you know, being a heavy set guy, like the comedian spotted me, he can spot a mark, you know, mile away and crapped on me for a couple of minutes, but you leave yourself vulnerable to that situation when you're there. So lesson learned for, for next time. And how did that make you feel? about that small <laughs> right. and like the only thing you can do since it's his performance is like either laugh back or just be quiet like you can't it's it's the most powerless feeling you can have
God, I think me off to no end, you know, yeah. I don't do, I don't really do crowd work. Like I can do improv stuff, but I don't, I, you know, people always say that, like, are you going to pick on me if I come to your show? It's like, I don't pick on people, <laughs> you know, my stuff is prepared. Like I, I, I'm giving you the best of what I have at this particular moment, you know, to talk about these things that I feel are, are real issues. You know, I interact with the audience, but I'm not like, Hey, where are you guys from? You know, you meet on Tinder, you know, there's all <laughs> these tricks you can do in comedy and that's a nightclub. You know, you buy some drinks, you go in there, someone insults you. That's that's traditional comedy club stuff. Thankfully, alternative comedy went beyond that in storytelling, you know, and I see myself more in, in, in storytelling these days, you know, because you get room to stretch out. I love the one liners, you know, but Twitter almost solves that for me, you know, because <laughs> I can do it in real time when you do that kind of topical stuff like I do in a comedy club. It has to be more generalized. I love how I can react to the moment about mm -hmm. stuff that's going down but you know i'm sorry that comedian you know put you on the spot like that it, it's yeah. it's never cool you know it's it's never fun i imagine you know somebody with your circumstance it's already pretty goddamn self-conscious in a public situation anyway right not everybody has a walker i, I cared mean, more that he talked about my mom he talked about me. your mom too yeah and like called her fat and no yeah that whole oh, thing this dude who's the comedian? and uh, remember his name the guy before him tried to make me feel better. Uh, he, he actually hit on me. He was like, if I was gay, dude, I would totally date you, you know, but that, that wasn't funny. That's inappropriate. Yeah. That's not, yeah. That's, you know, so like that, that wasn't, it, it was all distasteful, <laughs> you know? And at, at the end of it, I'm like, I actually tweeted the comedy club and I'm like, I'm not coming back. <laughs> thanks. What? Thanks for the experience though. What's the name of the comedy club? Because I'll make sure I never play there. Not that I do. It's it's but. shut down since the pandemic. It was called Crackers. In crackers. Well, that tells you it was called Crackers. Yeah, it's it. It's a in comedy Indiana, club. It in, called in, crackers, in Indianapolis right. called Crackers. You know? Oh, my so, God. Yeah. Crackers. Well, back to Crackers. Here's me and Jimmy. Two Crackers talking about the... Uh, that's insane. Yeah. I so, could do a whole thing on the, the history of Crackers. You know, it, it came from england and scottish folk songs and stuff in ireland the term crackers and then came here and people get really like offended you know white people like they'll equate cracker with the n-word which is not <laughs> even close and our new mayor in new york city the a video was just released this morning where he called a bunch of other cops crackers you know you yeah. a cop he's like i kicked those crackers ass <laughs> talking about when he was a cop that's gonna be interesting you know yeah. but anyway Wow. Well, I'm sorry you got insulted like that, Jimmy. But, you know, that's that's what I'm saying. And, you know, that's you life, can, man. Right. You can tell, you know, Jeff Ross is somebody who does the insult comedy thing and completely has a nice heart about it. Right. He's not right. being an asshole. Like there's a way to do it, make it funny. And everybody sort of gets in on the joke, you know, but it's not the appearance stuff, you know, and someone's weight it, that that's just stupid. And, and I know I make fun of like, politicians that are heavy set and stuff all the time i can't <laughs> help it you know what i mean just because i'm trying to point out the hypocrisy right everyone's acting like trump is some macho virile stuff <laughs> you know the guy has to be like literally squeezed into a hard plastic girdle right that they lace <laughs> up in the back a dude standing there with his foot on it trying to like you know put it on like a ski boot right you know it's insane if you saw that dude Right. He literally has double D's hanging over the side of the girdle. He's wearing a diaper. He's painted mm -hmm. orange. He gets winded walking upstairs. He asked for a golf cart to go 50 feet from an SUV into the <laughs> history and would not get out of his car until we got him a golf cart. And I was there with Ivanka and it was like, 
we can't bring a golf cart into a museum. It's a museum. Like you're not <laughs> driving a golf cart into the woolly mammoth. It's a museum of natural history in New York. You know, that's how he is. He's lazy. You know, he would take a full motorcade to go to the, the I think it's the Hayes Adam Hotel across the street from the White House. And that's where dignitaries stay. You know, if you're Nelson Mandela and you're coming to visit the White House, you're staying there. It's, it's like the royal kind of guest bedroom for our country. And traditionally, presidents would walk from the White House across the street. And when I was a bike messenger in D.C., I would all the time see like George W. Bush walking across the street or George H. W. Bush, the old man, you know, walking across the street instead of taking an SUV. It was sort of like always this traditional photo op, you know, and Trump gets in a SUV and, and drives, you know, around the block and uses eight cars to do it. So he's, 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 you know, he wears a lady's watch to make his hands look bigger. Anything <laughs> you need to know about the guy, that's it, right? But yeah. so that's when I, when I do that kind of stuff, you know, and I get pushed back when I do it and I probably deserve it, you know, but to do it just to somebody who's buying a ticket, and watching you perform, which is a privilege. It's an honor to be on stage entertaining people. And you should use that platform, you know, in service of love, right? That's how I feel. And that might be too hippy dippy, but you know, <laughs> you have an opportunity to make this place better, you know, to make people laugh and laughter comes together. I'm not saying it has to all be clean and stuff because these clean comics are kind of the biggest assholes, right? Bill Cosby would lecture mm -hmm. other comics that they don't curse, you know, and Seinfeld does the same kind of thing. And like Jerry married, was dating a 17 year old. Jerry Seinfeld would have been canceled in the nineties if he tried that shit today. You know, he picked up a high school student in Central Park and was dating her <laughs> for years, you know, like he, he got, he got lucky. But my point is, you know, and he's, I'm a clean comic. Yeah, but you're dating a 17 year old. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, how clean is that, bro? But anyway, I digress. Let's talk about, you know, we did a lot of Trump stuff. Let's, let's talk about like, you know, the Neil Young, Joe Rogan thing is fascinating. I, mm -hmm. I mentioned last week, I'd been to Neil's ranch. You know, Neil has, has his son has, has cerebral palsy, you know, and he has the bridge school benefit every year, which is to to raise funds for this school that he set up, you know, because th there's a guy who, you know, difficulty happened in his family and he saw how hard it was, how expensive it is with special needs and how much research needs to be done in education and how much more expensive it is to take care of your kid, you know, and realize like he's a gazillionaire, right? But other people aren't. So let me make it easier for them. Let me raise some money. You know, that's what you do as an artist. And CSNY, Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young, you know, I was the road manager for CSN. So we did a show in England at the Royal Albert Hall. It was the end of a Crosby, Stills and Nash show tour rather in Europe. It was a summer tour. And uh, so we're doing the last show in September. I can't wait to fly back to New York City. You know, I'd been on the road forever. And the band's manager came up to me backstage at Royal Albert Hall. and was like, oh, no, you're flying directly from London to L.A., and I booked you a rental car and we're going to do a week's rehearsal with Neil Young in Burbank. And then we're going to fly up and do the bridge school benefit right outside of San Francisco. So I'm like, oh, my God, like nobody told me, <laughs> you know, I thought I was going home, you know, and the scariest part of that was driving the rental car in L.A. after flying <laughs> from London because I'm not a big driver anyway. And driving in L.A. is freaking terrifying, It's <laughs> even more terrifying after you haven't slept you know, and you've been on an international flight, but 
my point is, you know, so I did it. I survived. I, I stayed at the Sportsman's Lodge, which is this legendary hotel that shut down in L.A., but all the bands would stay there because you could park tour buses in the lot. And it's in Studio City. And it was just an old Hollywood bungalow kind of vibe. Awesome pool. You know, they used to shoot porns there in the 70s. Just a legendary <laughs> place. You know, you'd you'd go there and they'd be like Link Ray and like Rascal Flats would be around the pool or whatever. You know what I mean? Not Link yeah. Ray passed away, but you know, there'd be like some old rocker, rock, you know what I mean? And like some country act and then a metal band. It, it, was, just, <laughs> it was hard to describe. Yeah, it was very cool. But uh, and Neil stayed there. Me, Neil and David Crosby stayed in this hotel for a week and the cast of The Voice. <laughs> the cast of the voice was there at the same time too which was bizarre and C Crosby would hold court every day and give these kids advice on the music business and listen to their songs and he'd bring his guitar down and we'd sit on these chase lounges chase lounges outside the pool like having these guitar pulls with these kids that were on this show and Crosby was giving them all kinds of great advice but only like Crosby does like he doesn't cut corners or bullshit and, and the producers of the voice got wind of this and moved the entire cast of the voice out like one <laughs> afternoon because they didn't want him falling under you know the spell of david crosby you know oh, wow. and let them know yeah. basically they were getting ripped off because that shows a ripoff they get all your rights to your music if you win it, it's it's draconian you know mm -hmm. the contracts those guys do and they didn't want their their marks becoming aware of this but uh so it just shows you the integrity and that's a mark burnett show by the way Mark Burnett is a producer of The Voice and NBC, right? So anyway, we're staying there for a week and we drive and do these rehearsals in Burbank every day in the soundstage with CSN. And I used to run the teleprompter, right? For Crosby and Nash and, and basically for stills. You know, they have so many songs. The words are just there in case you lose your place, which I don't mind. Some people think, oh, that's cheating. It's not. It's just to have it there so you can be more in the moment. You're doing a guitar solo and you forget where the verse is, you know, what verse you're coming in on and a song you wrote 55 years ago, you should be able to glance down, right? It's just part of production, right? You got all these other, an extra amp and all this other stuff. You might as well have that there too. They have that in Broadway shows, right? If you go up on a line, you say line and somebody in the wings is going to say, for art thou, Romeo, or whatever, you know what I mean? <laughs> so anyway, so I ran the teleprompter and when they told me in, in London that like we were doing this gig, they were like, you're going to run the teleprompter for Neil Young too. And I'm like, oh my God, like right. that's just intimidating because Neil intimidates the hell out of me, you know? So we go over in the first day of rehearsal in Burbank and I meet with Neil's crew, you know, who I've, I toured with Peggy Young, his, his, his wife who passed away. I toured with her before with, with Stephen Still. So I knew their crew and they're friendly. And basically the guy's like, here, I'll transfer these songs onto the, you know, this computer I used for the teleprompter, which had, you know, 200 CSN songs in it. And then uh, he transfers 1400 songs and he goes, here's all the songs. And I go, which ones is he going to play today? Cause I wanted to pull them up. You know, there's some technical stuff you want to be able to do it in the moment. You know, he goes, Oh, he could call for any one of those songs at any time. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I had a heart attack because in a moment's notice, I was going to have to be able to pull up some obscure, you know, version of a Neil Young song, you know, right. and have it there for him or get my ass chewed out because he doesn't, Neil does not play. And uh, not that, you know, not that he's mean, it's just, you know, he, 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 this stuff, you're, you're at a high level 
you know, let me just put it this way. You know, you, you don't Jackson Brown, Neil Young, like you've got to be on your game to work with these cats and rightly so. But um, so I'm like, oh my God, you know, I'm just sitting there having a heart attack this whole rehearsal. And I sort of guessed, you know, like long may you run, you know, hard to go, whatever. I kind of guessed at the songs that they'd be doing together having not played together for a few years and I was right like he never called for any of these other crazy songs <laughs> but it was nuts and I, during that rehearsal one my friend who's a guitar tech for stills towards the end of it started packing up the guitars that's something that happens in a concert when you get to the final two songs you start packing up the gear because you're going to load out so you sort of get a head start with the equipment you're not using anymore you know and there's a rock band playing in a room right so it's pretty loud right this kid snaps a guitar case latch shut and Neil hears it. And he's like, what is happening right now? Who's making that noise? That's unconscious. That just shows a lack of like sensitivity. And I was like, man, this guy is like in the moment. You know, at first I thought like, oh, he's being a dick. He doesn't have to call this guy out, you know, but later I'm like, that's how he's rolling. You know, everybody in this room is in on this gig, is in on like serving the music, serving the muse, you know, serving something higher than yourself. And then so then we'd get in the car and he'd get in his convertible Lincoln, right, which is electric powered. It's called a link volt. You know, it's this big, long 60s convertible and it runs on electricity or something, you know, and it's he'd put on his cowboy hat and smoke, you know, light up a spleef, you know, and drive back, you know, to Studio City. It was insane. It was insane. And then it got even more insane when I got to go to his ranch at the barbecue. And I'll tell that story another time. But when we did the actual show, it was like, you know, Hart, who's in Nan and Anna, Nancy Wilson and Hart. I have one of Nancy Wilson's guitars. That's the white telly. If, if any of the fans have seen my little music clips and, uh, Tom Waits, like there was some badasses on this gig, the band called Fun, which is a big band. They were big at the time. And then CSNY. And all I'm thinking about all night is like, oh, I got it. You know, this teleprompter, I, I hope he doesn't call any other songs. You know, I think I know what the set list is going to be. And we start the set and I'm basically on stage. He puts all the kids on a riser behind the band. So all these kids with special needs get to be on stage and they get the view that the rock star gets. You know, looking out at Shoreline, which is this beautiful outdoor amphitheater that Bill Graham, the great Bill Graham built, Bill Graham himself being a Holocaust survivor who had to walk from France to Spain as a 12 year old, you know, separated from his family and his little sister, you know, became a big rock promoter. And uh, but anyway, so these kids are getting this once in a lifetime experience, too, which I always thought was awesome. And that's what I focused on, just these smiling kids getting to be on stage with this music and this groove, you know, it just seemed like a, a wonderful way to incorporate it. And uh, so I'm all nervous. I hope the set list is right. And we had these kind of old monitors, video monitors for the, for the teleprompter that would kind of always given us trouble. And two songs into the set, the monitor completely goes out. Oh, yeah. And Steven looks over at me and I'm like, you're on your own, dude. <laughs> like, you're going to have to remember the words tonight, you know, oh, and they no. did. And yeah, it was a great set. It was fine. It's just funny. Like, yeah. and nobody cared. But uh, so anyway, that's Neil Young. You know, Neil Young's a good dude. He cares about the environment and the world. And, you know, he's also like irascible, you know, and he's a pain in the ass in many ways because he only cares about the muse and stuff. He'll just cancel the tour. 
because he's not feeling it and that hurts crew guys and whatever but you know that's a separate issue and that's his prerogative but um he started an interesting dialogue because there is nothing more important now than dealing with this pandemic, right? There's no real rock tours. You know, people are still doing it. They're still doing comedy clubs and comedy shows, but like the industry of entertainment has been severely affected. It will never, ever be the same again. You know, anybody who's not telling you that is just not grasping reality. It'll never truly go back to the way it is before because these viruses are going to be with us forever now right? It's not all just going to go away and everybody's safe and fine. This thing is going to continue to mutate. And it's going to do that because everybody didn't get vaxxed. If everybody had done what they should have done and gotten vaxxed last year, you know, everybody who could safely get vaxxed, some people couldn't, and that's fine. You know, we protect those people, but to not do it just because you heard Joe Rogan had some doctor douchebag on there telling you you have natural immunity and you're an athlete or something, you know, or you look up to Aaron Rodgers is criminal and and you're defacing a part of the United States, right? You're defacing people's lifestyles. You're preventing other kids from going there and hearing that music and being inspired. We couldn't do that today. You couldn't go sit on stage right next to another kid with 50 kids on a stage in a post-pandemic era, could you, Jimmy? None of those kids could, right? So, because it wouldn't be safe. So anybody who's making the world less safe for children is an asshole. And Joe Rogan is on that list and Neil Young ain't feeling it. He had polio as a kid. He knows what this shit is about. So it's ignorance, it's stupidity. It's not even worth another mention. I don't think I'll mention it again on this show. That's where I stand on this stuff. I'm not afraid of it. I'm not afraid of the dude bros. I'm not afraid of the truth. I'm not afraid of anything, but what I see happening in this country that's not getting called out, you know, is that these people are profiting mightily off of what's gone down and we're not getting the pushback. You know, I am afraid that DOJ doesn't take the action they need to take quick enough. I'm not, nobody's looking for dotting every I and T here, you know, get something to arrest him on and arrest him, right? Exactly. And you know, it's a sexual you know, predator. Arrest him for raping people. That's where I would start. You know, that's what I want to see him go to jail for. And no one even talks about that. Right. We just gave him a pass on that. A lifetime sexual predator, you know, who raped a famous woman he knew in Bergdorf and Goodman. Right. And walked right out of there in broad daylight, knowing he would get away with it. And he did. He's still not answered for that. And the DOJ defended him in that. You know, they took up his side in that case against E. Jean Carroll. Merrick Garland did one of his first actions as attorney general. That does not inspire confidence and the moral imperative to hold somebody accountable. This isn't just about the rule of law, you know, or law. Law, we've always had two sets of justice in this country, right? An African-American woman just got sentenced to six years in prison this week because she was on probation and she registered to vote, attempted to register to vote, didn't even vote, just attempted to register because the probation department told her she was eligible, filled out a form saying such, and she submitted it to the voter registration board, and a white judge found out about it and threw her ass in prison for six years. MAGA guys all across this country voted on behalf of their dead moms and stuff and got a slap on the wrist and probation and they throw a woman in jail for it. So there, it's not a fair justice system anyway. It always slants towards wealthy white folks. 
you know, and, and black folks, right? Bill Cosby's free today. He's sitting in his mansion outside of Philly right now, putting some freaking Benadryl in a, in a Seagram's and seven, you know, <laughs> and seeing if somebody's going to come over and visit him, you know, like it's insane because he's rich. So screw that. Go after the rich guys. Show us that you care. Do something about this. Well, and the, the cases that, you know, allow for that sort of thing, just give further license for it. We saw that with Kyle Rittenhouse. Like when you have rulings that go in the favor of things that are obvious crimes in a place like Wisconsin, it's going to pass down to Indiana, Ohio, the surrounding area. And uh, no, I was thinking about the uh, charity event that I founded uh, with Timmy Global Health. It was a professional wrestling charity event where kids with disabilities could be a professional wrestler for the day. And like you talking about CSNY giving them the perspective of what a rock star is, that event basically gives kids the opportunity to get into the squared circle and be a professional wrestler for the day. So, you know, that, that kind of reminded me of uh, the event, that concert that you went to the, the event that I founded called it Timmy takedown. And, um, because of the pandemic, we haven't been able to do it because it's just not safe enough for kids to participate in that sort of thing. Yeah. And it's a it's an unfortunate reality of where we are. It is. It is. You know, yeah. but, you know, that's where we are. We're going to get through this. We're going to get through this together. You know, we will laugh, laughing at everybody else. You know, don't laugh at I don't like people laughing at poverty either. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there's so many issues to address in this country, you know, go after the guys that are standing in the way of progress, you know, and the women, even these folks that are falling for all this MAGA stuff, you know, I don't hate them. Part of what fuels me in speaking out against this stuff is knowing that there's children going hungry because dad just bought another freaking AR-15 or sent Trump another $250 to keep the communists from taking over the country. You know, nobody's rich. Like we don't have a big middle class anymore. You have basically one percenters and then everybody else, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's not money to be spent on grifting politicians and the NRA and all this stuff. It saddens me to no end. And that's what I want to fight about and speak out against, you know? But uh, that's probably enough for this week. We've given you all an earful. I was going to get into the NFL. I'll do it next time. But Jimmy, when you first interviewed me that I met Jimmy folks, cause he, he has his own podcast and he reached out to me on Twitter and was like, can I, can you be on my podcast? <laughs> and yeah. I did. Right. That's how yeah. I met. That's how I met Jimmy. People often wonder, we've never, we've never met in real life or anything, but uh, then he came on board to help me with mine. But um, I told you the story of Marshawn Lynch, you know, when you right. first interviewed me and no one's ever really been hip to what I was trying to say to that. I said it on this other podcast with my friends recently and they kind of got it. But, you know, Marshawn got it that day, you know, and we'll get into that next week. OK, but that was yeah. between Pete Carroll and Belichick, you know, and I worked on the Super Bowl for almost 15 years, the halftime show. And it was such an example of the institutionalized racism that exists in the NFL, which, again, is no secret. <laughs> you know, like we're talking about the Cosby stuff, like, you know, I'm, this guy Flores, Brian Flores, what a, who wouldn't want that guy as their coach? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? How well does he speak of himself and how well does his record show, you know, and then the fact that he gets fired and stuff, it's yeah. insane to think that like black men aren't qualified to be head coaches. What are, what are you talking about? Who the hell do you think has been playing football, you know, but they've always tried to keep it. The golden boy is going to be this, you know, this white savior sort of quarterback. And you got another one last week, right? This kid's like Tom Brady too, you know, I'm not <laughs> guessing on that, but Jesus Christ, you know what I mean? 
he's, and that's he's what you so want. Cool. Yeah, you, you know, that, and I get it. You know, it's a business. So whatever. We'll get into that next week. I won't harangue your ears with that this week. Until then, you know, be safe. You know, the sun's getting a little brighter. Staying light a little light later, right? We're in February now. Month goes by quickly. It's Black History Month. The shortest month of the year, right? It's an old joke. But uh, <laughs> yeah. it's not yeah. funny. I'm just saying that's, you know, you give them a short cold month, you know, right. give them September, right. you know, give them a month where people are paying attention, you know, because black history is American history. Yeah. You know, that's the other thing with this anti CRT stuff. This is how evil happens. You don't let one specific set of people decide what history is and who is to be elevated and who is to be cast aside that's that's what we need to stop and change and that's what this moment is about and that's what a dialogue on this stuff will give us so until next week you know we'll get into that some more but be safe we love you we love all the support i always appreciate you guys listening and sending notes and stuff i got my t-shirts if you want to support the podcast they're at noelcastler.com you can find jimmy tell them where they can find you jimmy jbkonair.com and you can search my podcast jbk on air uh same deal for social media too twitter and instagram jbk on air so there you go get your thirst trap on go find <laughs> jimmy ladies i know you couldn't see him on video on youtube hopefully it works out this week but uh yeah you couldn't see the video so you had to go to jimmy's only fans page to see him <laughs> in the last couple of weeks but uh we'll be back on there we'll be back on youtube check us out be safe we love you till next week peace